A quick warning that this episode contains references to child abuse. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. It was winter in Kansas. Heather had flown in from her home in Portland, Oregon. Kansas was where Heather grew up, but not where she was born. Heather had been adopted by her family from Korea. It's such an incredible origin story. Heather was found in Korea in a call box. It's a safe place where mothers can leave their babies anonymously. She was tiny. She was so sick. She had pink eye and infections and failure to thrive. And she went from being little and sick and abandoned to being the middle child in a family of four white children, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of America. Heather had not been back to Kansas for years. Not since the moment she was old enough to leave, but her mother had died. And the whole family did what you do. They gathered, all of them, for the first time in a long time. And so I saw him drive up to the parking lot and he parked just a couple of spaces down from us and it was the same car that he had always driven and I kind of could recognize his face and my body just tensed up like just trying to fight every fiber in myself that did not want to look at him did not want to talk to him be near him Being back home for a funeral is hard. Being back home in the Midwest in January, that is hard. And being back home in the Midwest in January for your mom's funeral, hard. And so we get out of the car, and he gets out of his car, and he looks at us. But... What makes this entire situation even harder is that Heather and her sisters are, for the first time in 13 years, about to come face-to-face with the man who had sexually abused them throughout their childhood. He didn't know what else to do but give us this awkward smile. and The man Heather and her sisters were dreading seeing, the man who had abused them, was also their father. I just said hi, and then I turned to go into the funeral home. But we have to start with Heather's childhood, which, from the outside, looked fine. Heather's family, a stay-at-home mom, a dad who worked for the city, five healthy kids... They looked like a regular, happy, heteronuclear 1980s family. There was nothing remarkable about her dad, or really, their family. What was your dad like? In the family dynamic, he was always just kind of more quiet and in the background. And... I knew that he had a best friend. I don't know that I've actually ever met him. I can't remember his name anymore. 
But I always liked knowing that he had at least a friend that was not a part of our family. Um, he worked, and so that's that's mostly what I remember. He, you know, he was gone at work during the day, but otherwise he was kind of quiet, especially when other people were around. My mom was definitely the more um, dynamic one of the duo. She was the one that was in charge of the family and in charge of everyone, I would say. When you're little, you only know what you know. Normal is whatever your family is. And then you go to school and you see how other kids are and you start to notice things. Like, maybe I shouldn't pick my nose in public anymore. Maybe that's weird. Maybe, maybe it's weird how I cut my sandwiches. Maybe just it's, maybe it's weird. I don't know, just you're very concerned about being weird. And Heather notices something, something weird about the other girls. But I do remember being in a bathroom stall with a couple other little girls. Just like the simple act of just watching them pull their pants up after they were done going to the bathroom. And... Like, wow, they did not pull their pants up in the same manner that I did. Just naturally, as a child, I would pull up my underwear and I would move them to the side in the way that my father did so he could molest me. And I didn't key it together in that thought, like, in that moment, but it was definitely the beginning of realizing that it was different and that the world outside of my home is a little bit different. Every family has a nighttime routine. Our family eats dinner, cleans up, gets on our jammies, brush our teeth, reads stories. Our family definitely would eat dinner together and then finish up homework if there was homework. And then we would definitely read books, and then we'd brush our teeth, and then we would go to bed. Boring, right? Yeah, that's the point. You do the same thing every night, and then there are no surprises. Everyone knows what's going to happen, and things move more smoothly. Things that happen every night. Heather's is like any other family's routine. Except not. Because other family routines might look like dinner, stories, jammies, bed. And her family's looks like dinner, stories, jammies, bed, and then hell. So then my father would come into our room and he would get in bed with, I believe, each one of us. I don't know if he did the same order every night. I could not speak to that, but definitely he would come into my bed most every night. And it was definitely really common for him to just lay there beside me and just fondle me. Eventually, he worked his way toward him wanting me to touch him. And so that was our most common routine of him 
touching me or me touching him. It didn't feel right, but it happened almost every night. It was just so normalized because of his role in my life as my father and because it was just essentially like the bedtime routine, if you will. Yes, he worked his way up to where he raped me. And it is one of the memories I remember because it was more traumatizing than being just fondled and molested. And um, it was more traumatizing than watching him masturbate. Um, In fourth grade, long after that underpants moment when she was in kindergarten, Heather had another one of those light bulb moments. They happen more as you get older when you start to spend time at other kids' houses and you see how their families are. And sometimes that freaks you out and you're like, oh my God, never make me go there again. Their house smells like pickles all the time or their mom is really mean. Who can yell that much? That's probably how my kids' friends feel. (laughs) Sometimes it just makes you super grateful for what you have or it starts to light up those parts of your brain that were trying to tell you something was seriously wrong with your own home, your own upbringing. So, one day in fourth grade, Heather gets her first invitation to a sleepover at a friend's house. It's big. It's a big time. And things are different there at her friend's house. The food is different at dinner. They have a dog. And they just interacted with each other differently from what Heather was used to. I was a little nervous at first because I was like, does this mean that we have to go to bed with someone else's dad? I think is literally what I had in the back of my mind. Thinking, I I don't know, but I'll try because if I could put up with it here, I'm fine. But then once I realized, like, she said goodnight to her father. She said goodnight to her mother and her brother. And we were just hanging out in a room together And the door was closed, and it never opened. And I remember thinking, like, wow, that is really weird. But then also this kind of, yeah, that sense of relief. That's when the relief came. And then I would come spend the night another time of, like, oh, well, maybe, you know, this is really how it happens. It wasn't just because I was there, like, the first time. And and then just watching... My dad would want me to sit on his lap and like my friend wasn't sitting on her dad's lap and but then it was a really big clue for me of like wait this is really yes it is really Heather was going to school and at school she like many of us heard messages about what to do if someone touched her inappropriately didn't all of us but All of those messages centered around someone touching us who was a stranger, stranger danger, or like a distant adult. And the messaging was laser focused at that audience. You have every right to say no. And if they don't listen, you know, that that's really wrong. Or if they're doing something to you that you don't want, 
Like you have the power to say no or you have the right to say no. Heather would hear this and think, yes, sure. Mm -hmm. Makes sense if I get grabbed by a wild-eyed stranger with a white panel van offering me candy. Yeah, this is useful. But this doesn't apply to the situation with my dad. Or I would think as I got older, this definitely applies to the situation with my dad. But there is nothing I can do about it because he's my dad. What are you supposed to do if it's your dad? How do you tell someone your dad is the person who is hurting you? Especially when you're at an age when you haven't even gotten the sex talk yet. Especially when your mom is in the house when it happens. Every night, when Heather's dad would come to her room, her mom would be downstairs watching TV. And she would come upstairs to go to the bathroom because there was no bathroom down there. And she would turn the hall light on and look at us. And so if he was with me and that were to happen and she'd turn the light on, he would pull the sheet up if the sheet was down or just like he would just act like he was sleeping. She was so close she could have saved her daughters. That's what Heather hoped for. Every night, she hoped her mom would come and save her. I would be, like, begging her in my mind of, like, save me. Like, just save me. Or there would be times, like, thank God she turned on the light because it stopped him or changed the path, whatever. I don't know. Because that's what I remember, that just that hall light, it was... um, I don't know. It it was very... Very... What? Is it a sign her mom knows that she cares? Or just a coincidence? That beacon of a hall light would shine and things would stop and Heather would wonder. In what universe is it okay that... He was in there with us as often as he was in there. She'd wait for her mom to intervene, for her mom to be heroic. But she would then turn the light off, go to the bathroom, and then go back downstairs to her show. And I would always feel really sad when she would leave. Growing up, Heather and her sisters never talked about the abuse amongst themselves. And they never told their mother either. They just hoped every time their mom came upstairs during her TV time, every time they saw that hall light switch on, that she'd realize what was going on, barge in, and save them. She never did. Protecting us in her mind and protecting us in my mind, I think, were two different things. But one day after church, when Heather is nine years old, sometime after that first sleepover, Heather's father calls her down to the basement, alone, to the spare bedroom 
to have a talk. And it was really scary because I was like, I don't know, he, he never says things like that. He's never like, I need to, we need to have a talk. And then he takes me downstairs into our, our spare bedroom and we're having this conversation that where he is sitting me on his lap and he is telling me that he is not going, what he had been doing wrong was not Christian and that he was not going to do it anymore. Like he never named it, he never described it. And so at first I was not even positive. Like, are we talking about what you, I think you're talking about or I'm not 100% sure. And he's telling me that he's going to stop, which my first instinct and reaction in my mind is like, why is he telling me this? Because I don't believe it. Like, I've lived this most nights of my life. So how can I believe that he's just all of a sudden going to stop? And why is he saying this? Like, I'm really confused. We are going to take a quick break. We are back. Heather's dad had just told her that he wouldn't sexually abuse her anymore because it isn't the Christian thing to do. But Heather didn't trust him. She didn't put her guard down. So that night, I went to bed, and I actually had my younger sister sleep in bed with me because that, that was always one of my defense moves is just sharing a bed with my sister. Like, if I can occupy as much space, there's no room. And so I did that, and I, I was surprised he didn't come. The next night, he did not come to her room. Or the next night, or the one after that. So for a little while, the abuse did stop until it started again. Within a couple of months, Heather's dad came back to her room again and again and again. And then in high school, I remember waking up in the morning and he would be sitting beside me with his hands down my pants. And I just remember waking up the first time that happened and just kind of like still, I closed my eyes again and just acted like I was moving his hand in my sleep. But I just remember thinking like there is this... He's sick. Like, he's just literally sick. He can't stop himself. And part of me felt bad for him at that t- at that moment, in that moment. But part of me just felt angry. Like, he is just never going to stop. The same man who taught Heather how to use a lawnmower, who taught her the value of working hard and how to tie her shoes, he's the guy who was abusing her most every night. And even in high school, as a young adult, 
Heather didn't know what to do. She wanted to tell someone. So she picked a friend and she wrote her a note. It's high school. That's how you deliver big information. And her friend was so good to her. She came to Heather with hugs and love and they talked about it for hours. And her friend was like, look, we have to go to the police. And Heather thought, Yeah, we should go to the police, but there's no way I have the guts to do that. Like, I know we should go to the police, and there is nothing more that I would want for than for him to be in jail. I think I was also really terrified that if he did go to jail, that it would be my fault and that I would be tearing myself away from my siblings, which is something that I really didn't want to do. Heather's mom did not know what was going on, or she chose not to know. She's dead now, so we can't ask her. But at the time, Heather did not go to her mom for help, and she didn't go to the police. It was just too scary. The idea of going into a police station and telling an officer what was happening at home Also, how would she get there? Ask her parents for a ride? So instead, she turned to the youth pastor at her church, thinking, surely this person of God would help her out, would blow the whistle, rescue her. Heather summoned all her courage, and she wrote him a note, too. Like, I want you to know that he sexually abused me, and I don't know what to do. And so his responses always came back in the written form also of saying, you know, I'm really sorry this happened to you. I'm really sorry that you're dealing with this. You know, I'll be praying for you. That sort of response. And that was it. That was it. She got thoughts and prayers and absolutely no help. It was like her mother walking down the hallway but not turning into her daughter's bedroom. What gets Heather through these high school years is knowing that these years will end. And when they do, she'll be off to college. She had her sights set on the University of Oregon, home of the Ducks, was very far, far from home. She'd have a dorm room with a lock. She'd never have to worry about her dad showing up in the middle of the night. But the University of Oregon didn't work out, and Heather ended up at Kansas University, which is in the same city she lives in with her parents. We had packed all my stuff up and my mom had dropped me off and she had started crying and I was just like come on mom I literally live in the same town like it's not a big deal but she was just like no you're moving out you're going to college just like the mom thing that I probably will do as a mom myself and I get into my room and I unpack my things and my roommate comes in and we're so excited to meet each other and we, I think we went and had dinner and then we came back and we were still in our room hanging out and then 
we went and there was stuff going on in our dorm and I felt like this is my place. Like this is my place. It was not Oregon, but it turns out the dorms did give Heather the distance she needed from her father. That first night in her dorm room, Heather slept through the night. Back at home, still living with her parents, Heather had a little brother and sister, and Heather still struggled with wanting to report her dad and also not wanting to destroy her family. Bringing this into the light doesn't just illuminate what happened to her, but to her sisters, who were just not ready to have it all out there. One night, Heather and a friend took Heather's little brother and little sister out to a movie, and when they got to Heather's house, the police were there. Heather's first thought was that someone had turned in her father. Something had happened to expose everything. Turns out, they weren't there for her dad. Heather's mother was showing signs of mental health issues, and the police had been called, and the scene was chaos. Now, Heather's friend knows what Heather's dad has done to his children, and at one point, she kind of taps one of the officers on the shoulder and says, Hey. Just so you know, this man has sexually abused the girls that lived in this house, or his daughters, or however she worded it. And so then he, he, the officer, wants to talk to me and says, You know, is this true? And I said, Yes, definitely. Oh, my God. There it was. It was out there. She talked to the police. She told them the truth, or her friend did. It's not how Heather imagined this happening, but, like, the police know. Now justice will be served. And he looks at me and said, you know, you are too old to press any charges or file any reports. Wait. No. But my sister could if she wanted to. Heather had aged out? Heather's little sister wasn't ready to file a report, and Heather did not blame her. She hadn't wanted to in high school either. But this new information that she'd aged out? That's not okay. She was mad. At herself. Why didn't I have the guts to do something when it could have mattered? Okay, here's the thing. It did matter. At that moment, when the officer told her that, Heather was 19 years old. The statute of limitations at that time on sexual abuse was three years after turning 18, which means she had until age 21 to report. She was still under the statute of limitations. But... When that cop told her otherwise, she didn't follow up. She just deflated, disappointed. She took his word for it because he's a cop. He would know laws, right? And she's a scared 19-year-old telling an authority figure that her father did something horrible to her. And that is messed up. She did what she was supposed to do. She did a really hard thing. She told the legal representative, and he minimized it just like her youth pastor had done. Heather stopped going home. 
She graduated from college and moved to Oregon. Her sisters moved to the East Coast. And Heather did have direct conversations with her mother. Conversations where she told her mother exactly what had happened. And at first her mom was defensive and would deny she knew anything. You didn't tell me that it happened to you, so how was I supposed to know? Heather didn't believe her mother. With everything going on, how could she not know? So Heather pressed. And her mother's denial turned into excuses. Well, if I would have turned him in or if I would have reported him, then your older brother and sister would have been depressed. Which turned back into defensiveness about her own role, about how much she felt able to do. Like turning on that hall light. You know, I did protect you. That's why I would come upstairs. Or that's why I didn't get a job, is so I could be home and so I could be watching him. Heather's mom believed in her heart that she had done all that she could for her kids. And Heather disagreed. And she explained to her mom that there was a boundary being drawn. None of the siblings would have anything to do with their father. For Heather, she would not come home to a house where her father lived, which meant she would not see her mother if her father was present. Over the next decade, Heather only saw her mother across the room at family gatherings. And in 2013, their mother died. When they called to tell me that my mom had died, I had fell to the floor in this shock. And honestly, that shock was because I knew... Oh, my God. Like, I really, really, really don't want to do this. And I have been able to move away from him and go on with my life and not see him and stand my ground. But this is the one scenario where I don't know how to get around seeing him. As adults, Heather and her sisters had started to talk to one another about the fact that they had all been abused. And they all agreed to go to the funeral together for their mom, not their dad. It would be hard, but they made a plan to meet at the hotel in Lawrence, Kansas, before the funeral. We had to go to the funeral home the next day, and that we were all three there, we were going to be there for each other, and that no matter what that was that our agreement was that even if we have to go to the bathroom like two of us have to go to the bathroom then all three of us are going to the bathroom we were like we agree that we're not going to leave just one person alone with him because we all three I think felt so uncomfortable with him and that brings heather to that funeral parlor in Kansas where saying goodbye to her mom means also facing down her abuser. You know, we're walking in this room, and it's just like, 
my body can kind of just feel like it's on alert, like where he, where he is in the room. And we just try to sit as far away from him as we can. We're basically kind of sitting on one side of the table, the three of us, and then we put our bags around us so there's no way he could sit beside any of us. Funeral directors see all kinds of families, and most of us are not at our best while planning a funeral. So, look, this lady's just doing her job, going about her business, popping in and out, pulling stuff together, and at one point, she pops out of her office for what ends up being more than just a few minutes, and their dad takes the opportunity to speak to his daughters. And he just said, I want to talk to you guys about the abuse. And just automatically, I start crying, and I just feel my body just, like, tensing up, and I'm like, I really just want to plug my ears, but I know that that would be really immature, but I really don't want to hear a word from him. Like, I just do not want a word from him, so I just, like, make him stop talking. Like, I just wanted to will him to stop talking as I'm crying and bracing, trying to brace myself for what he had to say and he knew that it was wrong and that again that it was unchristian and that it's something that he really really wished that he hadn't have done and at one point he was just so mad at himself that he was pounding on the table and so my body was just like jumping when he was pounding on the table and and my sisters are crying the funeral director comes back and the conversation is over. Heather and her sisters get through the funeral, doing their best to ignore their dad and to close ranks around one another. When it's over, they fly home to their families. Heather starts to write about the abuse, and she comes to the point where She's ready to submit something for publication, and she sends the piece to her sisters just so they can have a heads up. And so it opened a conversation between the three of us of, well, I still agree that he needs to be in jail, and, well, actually, so do I. And I'm like, wow, really? And so we had gotten to this point through texting that we all three were saying the same thing. Heather had a friend, an attorney, who said she could ask to look into it. The sisters agreed, and Heather asked, and her attorney friend said, yeah, statute of limitations is passed. But she also, as a mandatory reporter, has to report it. And she does, which confuses Heather, like... Uh, now I'm 37, and this happened when I was a kid. Why now? It was confusing and exciting and overwhelming. But I was also just baffled because I had been told I was too old, and I felt like it didn't matter for so many years of my life that it felt like, well, wait a minute, why does it matter now? And... 
And what does that mean? Like, what does it mean now that we've reported him or she's reported him? Well, it meant that for the first time, Heather had control. She could just file the initial report and let it be, or she could keep going. I had opened myself up to this process, and I had told myself, I kind of want to push this as far as I can, because I do firmly believe that I wanted him to be in jail. I wanted to gain the courage to report him, so I need to do this. And so she had said, you know, well, I think that maybe you should come into my office next week and I can call the police and we can do it then. And I'm thinking, yeah, 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 okay, okay. But next week, like, wow, that's kind of crazy. I am just going to go report my dad to the police. No big deal. Like, okay, like. Heather tells her sisters and they're really supportive. They actually think they should do the same thing. And Heather's husband has a brilliant idea. Invite your sisters here to Oregon and you can all report together. So the Monday before Thanksgiving, Heather and her sisters meet a police officer at Heather's lawyer friend's office. And one by one, they give their reports. There's a part of me that wanted, that worried about being believed. I'm like, what does, what if he doesn't believe me because I'm talking about memories of my childhood? And so there were those things that I was not used to verbalizing that I was like, I knew I have to do with this cop, this police officer, because this is my chance to do what I wanted to do when I was 14. But now it's happening now. Heather and her sisters each spoke to the officer for about an hour. And the process really galvanized them. And in the moments when I was talking to the officer and saying, you know, my dad did this, my dad did this, my dad did this, like I'm feeling like empowered and I feel like I'm rising, like I almost feel like I'm floating. It was this kind of -of out-of-body experience that I wasn't expecting. And then when I'm talking to my sister and she's telling me about her kids or the weather or her car or just something completely unrelated, about a half an hour into talking to her, just shooting the shit, like all of a sudden I just start feeling like I am sinking and like I'm being pushed, like being literally pushed in my shoulders, like being pushed underground, like into dirt or sand or something. And then I just start bawling. And then my sister's like, whoa, whoa. She's like, it's okay, and comes over and hugs me. And it's just like, I think that's the moment it hit me that that I had reported. You know, I had made my report. I had done what I could. Heather's sisters all flew back to their families for Thanksgiving. And they've all done what they could. The Oregon police took the report and sent it to Kansas. They told Heather and her sisters, you won't hear from the Kansas police for probably six months. But a month later, Heather got a phone call from a police officer in Kansas. He had gotten the report and he was going to start surveillance on Heather's dad. 
because I had expressed to him, the detective, that I had no doubt in my mind that if my father had access to someone, that he would be harming someone. They were going to follow him. They were going to try to see if they could catch him and just see what he, where he goes, who he's in contact with his life. He also asked Heather to think hard and to remember more detail. What color your pajamas were, what color the walls in your room were, any memory that you have involving the abuse. You know, tell me about your mom. Tell me, you know, about your dad and his temper. Tell me about your mom and her temper. You know, anything that you can remember. Everything is in place, and four months later, an officer went to visit Heather's dad. Just one random day in July, they showed up at his front door and knocked. Like, I didn't understand how it happened if they just sat down at his kitchen table and were like, so did you sexually assault your daughters or not? Or like, how does that, like, what does that look like? She explained it to me that they sat down and she said he definitely didn't confess to everything that we said at first. And she said it was kind of a normal reaction that he had a little bit of that denial going on in him. But she said he eventually confessed to everything that that we said he did. She said he agreed to every that. He did everything that we said he did. He confesses. All of the fear, all the anxiety, all the bravery, it all led up to this, this vindication. Now, now Heather and her sisters will get that hearty, heaping helping of justice. And I said, well, then, you know, well, then what happens next? Like, I don't understand, like, then just what does that mean? Like, you guys are just like, well, thanks for confessing to being a child molester. Like, have a great day. Like, you know, what does what do you even do about that? And she did say, you know, well, Heather, this is a conversation that I will have a hard time forgetting because it was, she said it was hard for her to walk away, like, having his confession. Because um, I said, you know, it's I know that they can't, follow him around for the rest of his life. I know that they can't arrest him. We talked about that, about how the statutes of limitations had run out. Even if he he begged them, like, please put me behind bars. I'm a criminal. They, they literally just could not put him in jail. Like, what about the sex offender registry? Like, can't he be on that? Well, no. No. The officer said Heather's father would be willing to be on the registry, but no, not without a conviction. You can't just, it's not like RSVPing to an Evite. You can't just click yes, put me on the sex offender registry. Not without a conviction. And the statute of limitations had passed, so there was going to be no conviction. Heather's dad didn't actually confess to everything that Heather claimed in the report. He denies raping Heather. And because Kansas eliminated the statute of limitations on rape, that was the thing that could have had him face any consequences. Kansas 
is not a unique place. A lot of states have statutes of limitations that put the responsibility for getting justice on the survivor. A survivor who might be a child being assaulted by their parent or by their priest. A survivor who is so busy just trying to survive that they aren't ready to just show up to the police station and hope they get an officer who's ready for that kind of report. So there's nothing that can be done. As far as Heather knows, her father is still living at home, just like he's always been. But after all this, all these years, after surviving that call box in Korea and the years of childhood abuse, Heather is not ready to let it go. She's not ready to forget. I've, um written to the governor of Kansas, I've written to the mayor of Lawrence, I've written to the state representatives. I just feel like I'm not done pushing it forward. Heather's not ready to forget or ready to stop fighting, and she's not ready to forgive either. And he had asked for forgiveness back in that funeral home, while pounding on the table. And then he gets to the point where he says, you know, but I really, really hope that you can forgive me. And then he's looking at us, and my older sister is starting to say, like, yes, okay, fine. And and I remember I stopped her, and I was like, don't. I was like, don't do it. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. I am Nora McNerney. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Our assistant producer is Marcel Malakibu. Our intern is Emma Martins. Special thanks to Curtis. Uh, Curtis, the best. The best. If you can get Curtis to listen to your podcast before it comes out, it's going to end up better. Don't ask him to, though, because we need him to work on ours. <laughs> Thank you, Curtis. Gilbert. Megan Oglesby and Emma Dill also gave this a listen. Thank you, ladies. We are a production of APM, American Public Media. Ooh, our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson. <laughs>